Hello and welcome to a special episode of Stroke FM. This week we're excited to bring you three cool studies that were highlighted at the International Stroke Conference happening virtually this year as part of the American Heart Association. I'm your host, Human Kostravani. <laughs> This year's conference kicked off by Dr. Elkind, who is the president of the American Heart Association, to talk about building bridges between disciplines in both neurology and cardiology. This was, of course, of pivotal focus during the last year and the pandemic. But more importantly, this year's American Heart Association put an emphasis on actionable changes that could affect disparities that we see in stroke. More importantly, changes that can affect populations that are unequally affected by disparities such as race, gender, and other characteristics that are right now causing inequity in how patients are treated who have stroke. Of course, these are not unique to stroke, but it's great for the American Heart Association to recognize this. And I think you're going to see a lot more research that has this focused or this angle on trying to see whether the fancy treatments that we impart on actually have some understanding of if there are inequities built in or lack of, you know, ability to bring these therapies to different populations. Let's jump into one of the cool studies that was highlighted this year and presented called AngioCat. AngioCat was presented by our colleagues down in Valdebron Hospital in Barcelona, and this study is not yet published, but its results were highlighted on Wednesday, March the 17th. AngioCat essentially tries to address procedural changes in how hospital workflow can affect the difference and to try to see if there's a difference in outcome, of course, for patients taken to thrombectomy directly versus going through the standard imaging pathway. So essentially, they had two arms in the study. One was the direct-to-CT arm. The other arm was the direct-to-the-angio-suite arm. In each of these arms, there were approximately 70 patients. And the folks that went for CT scans went through the standard imaging pathway. This would include CT, CTA, CT perfusion. However, for patients that came through the direct to angiopath, they were screened, both cases were screened in the field, and then upon arrival to hospital, a neurologist examined them, made sure that the NIH stroke scale was at least greater than or equal to 10, that they had a good modified rank and score baseline, and then they were randomized to either going through the traditional imaging pathway or taken directly to angiography. If they went to angio, they still had a screening CT, but this CT was something called a flat panel CT, which is done right on the angio table. If the patient at that time met criteria for thrombolysis as far as time, and they were obviously confirmed to not have hemorrhage on the flat plane CT, they were actually treated with thrombolysis. This occurred in both sides of the study. One interesting challenge is, for example, if the patient was found to be an intracerebral hemorrhage, well, now they're in the angiography suite and they have to be, 
you know, brought back to the emergency department to be managed. And that could be an important balancing measure, meaning that those types of patients may not have gotten the best care, but again, we're just hypothesizing. Let's get to the interesting takeaways. The two arms of the study were utilizing this hyperacute flat panel CT, which appears to be safe in detecting intracerebral hemorrhage. We need to know more about this, but there are other studies by this same group to suggest that a flat plate or flat panel CT can be used in the angiography suite to rule out hemorrhage. Now, given that this study really focused more on intrahospital workflow, they showed a drastic reduction in door to puncture times, approximately a median of 18 minutes in the direct to angio suite group versus 42 minutes in the direct to CT. This was a whopping difference of 24 minutes between these two groups. So they achieved a very quick door to groin puncture. Now, interestingly, they had similar numbers as far as uh, the efficacy of their of the actual intervention, which was puncture to recanalization. So in both of these arms, the puncture to recanalization time was the same, suggesting that once they had groin access, they took the same amount of time to actually get the clot out. However, once again, in this case, the door to reperfusion time was 57 minutes in the direct to angio suite compared to 84 minutes in the direct to CT. Now, interestingly, there were no differences in the endpoints of these studies, such as the NIH stroke scale at 24 hours, and then they looked at this as well at five days. They also saw if there's a major change in regain of function, and in fact, in that case, again, there was no difference. There was a redistribution in the modified ranking score for patients who went directly to angiography suite. So there appears to be an effect, but certainly there was no clear impact on the NIH stroke scale and no major changes in dramatic recovery or 90-day mortality. There was a trend towards lower mortality on the direct angio arm. However, this did not reach statistical significance. This, from a quality improvement perspective, was really cool because it essentially showed that if you speed up intrahospital processes, screen the patient, and then take them to the angiography suite for that screening CT, you can actually start to treat the patient sooner. Now, the jury is still out. As I mentioned, there's only 70 patients roughly in both arms, and it's a single center study. And so the jury is still going to be out on how much this is going to really impact outcomes. But at the end of the day, it is a dramatic improvement in process. Now, the other important point is that there is this balancing measure, meaning that if the patient had, for example, status epilepticus after coming in for a focal seizure, which again looked like initially a stroke, or if they had a hemorrhage, there could have been some delay in their definitive management because instead of being taken to the resuscitation room and managed in the emergency department, they're now being taken to the angiography suite. This is an important consideration, again, needs to be teased out in the ultimate uh, kind of um, wash out of these studies. Nonetheless, this was extremely exciting and the message should not be lost that large vessel occlusions can be screened with proper attention to the history and physical exam by initially EMS and then very quickly confirmed by the neurologist in the emergency department and then taken to the angiography suite. Of course, again, not having the full details aside from what was presented, 
this type of thing is probably really easy to do when the team is immediately available, which is quite helpful if they truly are there and able to do this rather than activation and having to drive in and so on and so forth. Overall, it's a positive step forward and very exciting. The other study to kind of highlight, which again has the idea that time still matters, even though in stroke we're moving more and more towards biomarkers and understanding of uh, tissue such as understanding from perfusion or MR perfusion whether t whether the brain is still viable and we can extend our windows there is still that emphasis on importance of speeding up our processes and probably those in fact you know do impact uh, outcomes and very interestingly another study came out on Wednesday March the 17th called the best MSU study the best MSU study is essentially a Houston area a study for mobile stroke units and in this uh, study what they did is on alternating weeks they had a mobile stroke unit which is essentially an ambulance with an onboard CT scanner go out into the field and meet the stroke patient and at that time the patient would be you know having an acute examination by an expert team uh, then imaged right on site and then given treatment being in the Houston area, they had an interesting population. So for example, a lot of the patients had already had some form of disability, which, you know, essentially mimics a more comorbid status. Also, it was good to see that about 40% of patients in this study were African American. The numbers of males and females was very similar, but overall, they were able to enroll about 75% of their patients in the Houston area. Interestingly, the rate of mimics was the same in both times when the mobile stroke unit was deployed and when it was not deployed. And they had to do this in alternating weeks. They could not sort of ethically, because they work with fire and emergency services, go to the scene on a week where, for example, it's a mobile stroke unit off week, go to the scene, do everything the same, but not examine or treat the patient. So what they decided to do is have weeks where the ambulance would be working, the mobile stroke unit would be working, and weeks when it was not working, and compare those two. Taken together, 33% of patients were treated within one hour of their stroke. This is absolutely astonishing. This brings the concept of something called the golden hour. Now in other resuscitation fields, such as critical care, emergency medicine, neurocritical care, we know about this. We know that the first hour when someone presents is sort of called the golden hour. There's a lot of information about the importance of this. And it turns out that if you take the test, take the test and the treatment into the field to the patient, this golden hour matters because 33% of patients were treated within the golden hour versus only 3% of the patients who were brought through the traditional pathway of the emergency department during the time when the mobile stroke unit was not active during those weeks. This is a very striking difference. This suggested that faster the door-to-needle times, or if you will, ambulance or ambulance door-to-needle time, actually matters because a smaller proportion of these patients then had large vessel occlusion, suggesting that if you can treat the blockage early, by the time you get into the emergency department, because the patient still is transported obviously to the hospital, the rate of large vessel occlusion is actually less. Strikingly though, the median time from EMS alert, that's dispatch to TPA, the median was 46 minutes. And that's fantastic when you think about 
this is the field rather than what we calculate typically, which is patients already registered. And we're essentially calculating registration to TPA time as a surrogate of door to needle time rather than this particular marker. Overall, 17% more patients were treated with TPA and a full 30%, as I mentioned, in the golden hour compared to 3% in the first hour through the traditional pathway. There were 10% more patients with a modified Rankin score, so very little disability of 0 to 1 at 90 days. And of course, the question you may be asking yourself is, is this cost effective? Is it cost effective to have an ambulance drive through the city, a big ambulance with a CT scan? And can cities even afford this? Is it cost effective? Is it, is it, is it effective from a healthcare utilization perspective? And the author said that they're going to be studying this and we look forward to these studies. Overall, this is a still a positive step forward, pushing the boundaries and uh, representing again, hyperacute innovations in stroke care. So very, very cool. The third study I wanted to highlight for you, which is part of these three studies, three of my favorite studies presented over the past few days at the conference, is the study called Mr. Clean, No IV. Now, Mr. Clean, funny enough, from the group in Holland, Amsterdam, was the original most pragmatic and largest trial of thrombectomy within the first six hours. And that study was called Mr. Clean. So what naturally came about was to think about, can you remove, can you think about if you were to remove TPA from the equation? Does it matter if patients got TPA and then EVT or went directly to EVT in the first early portion of their stroke? And so was born this concept of Mr. Clean, no IV, and the results were miraculously presented and because the study actually completed slightly early, despite the challenges with COVID. Overall, about 540 patients were enrolled, and the study was pragmatic in nature, where patients were essentially randomized to receive either um, TPA and then go for thrombectomy versus going for thrombectomy alone. Now, interestingly, they didn't have a cutoff on how bad the brain looked on plain CT, such as the aspect score, which was is just very pragmatic. They also included all types of lesions, like a tandem lesion or a distal occlusion, and they also allowed rescue all to place. This led to an interesting finding in that Essentially, um, they also ensured that the door to groin puncture time was kept relatively the same as the trial evolved. So if they saw centers kind of in this in this large multi-center study, if they saw centers kind of slowing down with their groin to puncture times, they actually ensured that that was the same. Interestingly, the amount of atrial fibrillation as a baseline characteristic was not as much as other trials. But let's get to the main findings. The cool part was there was no difference in the primary outcome compared to, you know, looking at the modified Rankin score. So it showed that in fact, there was a, maybe a trend to slight difference in mortality for going directly to EBT, but this again did not reach statistical significance. These data, and in fact, this trial was supposed to be a superiority study following from a non-inferiority study that was done in the Chinese population for a trial called direct-MT. Now, interestingly, this study did not show a superiority or a non-inferiority of going directly to EVT versus combination therapy, meaning TPA 
and thrown back to me. And interestingly, there were no differences in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. Let's unpack this. So on first pass, it suggests that going direct to EVT versus getting thrombolysis and then going to EVT, these two pathways at this juncture in this very pragmatic study did not seem to make a difference to the patient's outcome. And the rates of hemorrhage were not different. So this suggests that when patients bleed or do poorly, it is not the fact that necessarily they had thrombolysis on board, but it is more that potentially there's some biological plausibility that it is the reperfusion injury that's causing the hemorrhage. And in some patients on either arm, that reperfusion injury is more devastating and causes a big problem. And it's not necessarily due to the fact that they have TPA on board, which is a slightly counterintuitive idea. Of course, this is provocative and needs further testing, but there's some biological plausibility. The other very important takeaway is that right now for patients that are still eligible to receive thrombolysis, going directly to EVT was neither superior or non-inferior to them getting combination therapy. So let's unpack that. What it means is that if the patient is eligible to receive thrombolysis, we should not deny them of thrombolysis at this juncture. Certainly it sounds like the, the criteria to pick who should get thrombolysis or not, who should go to EVT directly or not, still needs a lot more science and teasing out to do. So for now, the signal appears to be the same to just go ahead and exercise current guidelines, meaning if they're eligible for TPA, go ahead and give it in a timely manner and then go to EVT. We will see if more and more data in subsets of patients show that there's a benefit to a, to a subset of patients, but right now taken together, it does not appear to be the case where we fully understand all of this. So that's a great summary, hopefully, of three of my favorite trials from the International Stroke Conference, which were presented over the past few days. Hopefully, we'll be bringing you a series of more in-depth discussions around these trials. And uh, this is a quick highlight of those studies. I would also like to highlight in this special episode of Stroke FM, music by Breakmaster Cylinder. Breakmaster Cylinder is a musical composer featuring electronic music and other genres and for many other podcasts. And we are extensively grateful to Breakmaster Cylinder's gracious allowance of us to use music. And to quote, strokes are important and support by Breakmaster Cylinder of our stroke initiative goes a long way. We are very grateful for this and look forward to future collaborations. Thank you for listening to another episode of Stroke FM. 